Welcome to the second annual Health and Human Rights Summit here in Tucson, Arizona. My name is Drew Heaton and I am the director for Humans for Humanity Coalition. Our mission is to awaken individuals to the health and human rights crisis of our day. We promote, preserve, and protect traditional ethics, objective scientific research, and informed medical consent. We believe in the ethical treatment of human beings and in the abolition of human exploitation. Through coordinated volunteerism, personal religious practice, and personal spiritual refinement, we educate citizens and political leaders regarding the ethical questions that influence government policy. And we financially support through fundraising those organizations which share our values. We support the values of compassion over criticism, forgiveness over condemnation, autonomy over subjection, consent over coercion, and data over dogma. If you're wondering what coordinated volunteerism is or looks like, this summit is the perfect example. United in the desire to preserve liberty for ourselves, our children, and future generations, many individuals donated their time, talents, and resources on their own initiative. No one in our organization receives compensation for their service. The monumental effort so many individuals provided to bring this event to fruition is a miracle. So I'm so excited to be here. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with me, my name is Allison McDowell. I have a blog. It's called Wrench in the Gears. And um, I'm, I'm from Philadelphia, and I kind of introduced myself as a mom and an independent researcher. And I, I fell into a lot of this through education activism. Um, and it really blossomed over this past year as sort of this health scenario simulation program has been rolling out, um, that a lot of the work that I did in the education space is directly applicable to the other aspects of what I sort of frame as a biosecurity state. So I have a really long presentation that I'm going to break across the, today's lunch and tomorrow's lunch, and then I have a wrap-up at the end of the day tomorrow around children. Um, but I brought... I. I think a lot of what we're doing is part of an energetic engagement. And I think it's sacred work. And I think they would like most of the framing of today and tomorrow are around a, a game, uh, a game that is happening within a global digital police state uh, to benefit uh, a small number of people with concentrated wealth and power at the expense of the masses of humanity. And that's global humanity. It's not simply people in Tucson or people in the United States or and, and what they most want is for us to fight one another and to 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 dig into boxes and identities and to not further interrogate and look up upwards at the people who are really controlling the whole system. And so so my framework, I offer a particular lens. I will say it's not necessarily everybody's lens, but if it's if it's useful to you, I hope it will expand and give you some ways of fitting pieces together. Um, I brought, these are my little, my, my mothers, the mothers. Um, and I have a friend in the UK, and her name is Isabella, and she publishes a, a magazine called Women, Earth, Soul. And so she, she had us do... Uh, a gathering over the winter and to, to assert the, the power of, of mothers and women in this time. And she said, Allison, would you do something? And I said, sure. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do is I wanted to go to Wharton Business School, which is in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania where I am. And I wanted to do a revocation of consent against these human capital bond finance programs that they've been rolling out. And so I made these little 
little ladies with scraps of felt, um, just their hand sewed, and they're actually more like poppets. I, I collect natural objects. I work um, at a botanical garden part-time, and I'm not a horticulturalist. I have a desk job, but I, I, I gather leaves and twigs and shells and things that speak to me. And so I put all of this natural love into these little dolls, and, and I took them with me for that and they, they've come with me to various other revocations, so I thought they would hold the space. And, and then this is also from Driftwood on the river, on the Schuylkill River where, where I work. And to me, um, they're trying to put us in this panopticon. And to me, that this is sort of the, the, um, the inversion of the police state panopticon is that, that is about nature. It is about natural life and that we are here today as keepers of natural life in the face of uh, synthetic biology, really, and, and things that are going on. And so, um, yeah, I, this stuff I'm going to talk about is heavy, um, but I come, people always say, you say it in such a light way, <laughs> because I don't think they want us, like, I don't want to show up and have everybody bummed out so that we give them more en energy to them to carry on this agenda. But I think knowing the, the, the map of the terrain, that's how I sort of feel myself as giving people a, a sense of where things are headed. Not knowing that they'll be able to scale this, I want to say this up front, I do not know that they'll be able to impose all of the things that they contemplate. Clearly, cybernetics is something that's been, uh, you know, in the thought process since World War II, you know, in the technocracy much even earlier than that, and they haven't done it yet. So I don't think that we are powerless. I think we are quite powerful, and but we need to both be able to have the courage to look at the truth of what is happening and then to use our... Uh, sacred energetic presence and however that presents to you in your faith practice and this is again global and so I'm I'm coming to say there's not any one right way to do that is from your authentic caring self and connection to your creator to take that stand against this planetary computer that they're trying to build so I've actually um if, if you haven't heard I've I have it came to me uh, early in the spring, like because it's hard to keep a feeling of agency while all of this is going on, right? You feel somewhat powerless. And this idea of dandelions came to my head. And, I, and you know, as a symbol of this resistance movement, because it is, it's natural, it's a medicinal, it, it's, it's, it, it feeds people, it's, it actually is a liver cleanse, so it's against anger, because they also want us angry at one another, even at the bad guys. Um, it has the whole transmutation from the bud to the flower to the blossom to the seeds, it gets everywhere. It's on every, it's around the world except everywhere except Antarctica, I think. And it's free. Like it's it's a it's a plant of the people, really. And in many respects, in the most botanically impoverished communities, uh, the dandelions are more prevalent even than in the suburbs, as we've seen in the previous lectures about Monsanto, <laughs> you know, the glypso, yeah, the roundup. So so the dandelions came to me. So I've been having people send me dandelions, and I've been doing um, ceremonies of actually applying like water and dandelions to the, the, the thresholds of these institutions of power to sort of transmute this and to, to, to take back our power and to say that what's happening to the children that is not okay. So we, I did one in New York City, and, and actually we closed it out at the Federal Reserve, the New York Federal Reserve building, and I have a friend with a gong. So we gonged and we sang and we said, you don't have our permission, and we laid down the dandelions. And then we, we did this labyrinth maze at the end. And at the end of, in the middle of this labyrinth, because the other pieces with dandelions, um, I, I read that um, Hecate, uh, fed Theseus on dandelions for 30 days before he fought the Minotaur. And I feel that Wall Street 
this, this global financial apparatus, which the previous presentation sort of touched on, that debt finance, militarized debt finance, is represented by Wall Street. And so the Minotaur, so we will take our dandelions to the Minotaur. So I'm just going to read this. This came with a ship, a, a bit of dandelions. And if you can see, it's, it's construction paper. And there's, this is on a paper towel with ballpoint pen and like little um, dot markers, I guess. And so just to set the tone, um, children's growth is guided by love. Thirst for power and control has no jurisdiction here. So everything I, I say, I just want to give that back context, is we are, we are the keepers of life. And we come from all different practices, belief systems, histories, levels of knowledge or lack of knowledge. And um, so, you know, we'll get it going. So, okay. So let's see. So. Um, it's, it's farmer's market time in Philadelphia again, and my husband's great, and he always goes to the, the Mennonite stand, and he gets this wildflower bouquet, and I was, but he doesn't like to arrange it, he just likes to plop it in. So he's like, you know, can you put them in nice? And this was a particularly wild bouquet, that, um, because it's the early spring wildflowers in the peonies, and, you know, I put, I was putting it in, and I thought, like, the composition that in this, everyone has their gifts. Everyone, it's knowing your gifts and how to give them. Robin Wall Kimmer is one of the, the people whose teachings I follow. And so I feel like the gift that I have to, is to arrange these blooms in a vase so that, they, that, that you can understand them together. And so what so many of the speakers today are offering different blooms for this vase, their gifts, their gifts in advocacy around um, proper local control for money systems, around safe in, environments for children to play in, around nature, around... Um, health, you know, health choices, all of these things are everyone's gifts. And so I go wide, not deep. So I'm the, I'm the vase assembler. So that's how, sort of how I see myself. And on, on Twitter, um, I can't remember, it was in response, but someone said that's, that's the one thing that they can't code is a soul. They can't code a soul. So, you know, this is, this is the backdrop. And and this is a contrast to that, that bouquet, right? So um, we're moving into a cybernetic age. And, and World Economic Forum, these folks have told us straight up sort of what their plan is for this um, coming age is that they, they want to meld human life, natural life, not just humans, but particular humans, um, into this uh, digital system, the cybernetic system. And, you know, for a while, my... my experiences continue to unfold. You know, it was around education, then it was around poverty, then it was around finance, and then it was around smart cities and infrastructure. And then really only lately has it come around to transhumanism, which is which is Alana's like area of expertise, but the, this idea of virtualizing life in these systems. So we're, we're really approaching almost like it's a Frankenstein moment. And they're, they're framing it to us as, um, you know, innovation, right? We're, we should all be so excited that this is happening. And, um, you know, I equate it to, uh, like, the golem bringing in, like, these robots. They would like to feed our life force to learn us in every tiny detail, not to empower us, but to actually transform us into a robotic simulation that, that is under their full control. And that legacy comes with the golems, but also there's the, the Krat, I think, which is the straw figure in Estonia. And it's interesting because Estonia is the model smart city e-government. And their initiatives, they specifically call out their initiatives around good AI as the Krat law. Krat law. So they're already saying straight up that this is the plan, and they're working at programmable life and programmable matter. So I will I will make a note here that um, uh, the the this 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 system here my friend Joseph brought it to my attention it is actually open source 
because the goal is to have this cheap and widely available. Um, you can see it says you can print it yourself for $350. They're trying to bring the price points. You know, you imagine what we had with phones and virtual reality, like this is going to drop so that everyone has one of these, right? There's, there, I, I sort of quipped it's part of the school uniform is like, where's your headset on there? Um, that the, sorry, the, uh, the, uh, the donors to that includes Columbia Engineering School. And that's something that Patrick has touched on in the past is the technocracy really like was coming out of the Columbia School of Industrial Engineering. So there are these longer legacies in place that keep reverberating forward, right? The people who were involved in industrial engineered society are now interested in um, tracking and programming your brainwaves. So I feel like in many respects we're at this crux. And as I mentioned in my opening remarks, it's this question of, of are we doing webs of relationship? And again, I, in this moment where everyone feels so panicked, it's like, how do I take care of myself and my family? You know, how do I make sure that we're okay or that my local community is okay? And I think understanding this engagement as a web, like not the spatial web or the internet web, but a natural web, the mycelia, the fungi, that we are inter we are stronger together and that, that no one is going to survive Goldman Sachs and DARPA on their own and, you know, hiding out in a cave. Or if you do, that, that existence will not probably be super fulfilling for very long. So we actually need to knit these webs of relationship together. And I feel like, um, especially here on this geography, my training is actually in art history and cultural landscape. And so I always like to know, like, what is this place I've come to, right? And looking at at the Apache Wars, right? Looking at that engagement, if we understand those people were being erased off of their lands and off of their faith practice and off of their connection to their land-based existence. And they, like for the most part, this is more earlier on with colonization, no one had any words to understand what was about to happen, right? When, when, when folks, you know, the first, you know, Invaders came over, the people on the shore, they didn't know what was in the heads of those people because they came from a different way of life. Their, their way of life was very different. And so there was no common understanding, right? And so I feel like we're at this threshold now again of this, this conquest is about to happen of biological life and no one has the words or even the mental framework to conceive of it yet. And so we are kind of like sitting ducks unless that we can, we can come together. So um, the foil to the, the natural life web of relationship, um, and again, I was, I was hoping to get out to that Vatican telescope, but it's too far. But that is, is a very much a symbol of people standing against um, pr you know, pr progress, innovation, domination of nature and the cosmos with man-made tools is Michael Crow, who, who I think has quite a larger-than-life presence in the state as president of Arizona State University, but also a representative as the founding board chair of InQtel, which is the CIA's venture capital firm, um, one of the main entities that is funding all of the, the autonomous everything to create the smart world that will replace us. So there's like, he, they're funding among those Niantic, which was the Pokemon Go augmented reality, the test bed for that, right? So that's, no one really thought at the time like, oh, this is actually the, the beginning of the global police state, right? But it's entertaining, um, but you know, it's backed by the CIA, right? So that's, there are these two juxtapositions. So again, 30 years, they were in this engagement for 30 years in the natural landscape. Um, and they were, a lot of this was done. I have a friend, um, a new friend actually, but someone who I work, I respect very much, Stephen Newcomb. And he spent his adult life, he's um, uh, Lenape and Shawnee, I think, looking into the basis of Indian law 
and the papal bulls and going to Europe and reading them in Latin and deconstructing the coded language of domination policies that enabled the world that we are currently living in today and that may ultimately end up as a military video game. But the trajectory of this, that this isn't something that just recently went wrong. Our understanding of essentially the ability to secure resources and land because people were conceived of as uncivilized and heathens, right? Like that's the papal bull, the doctrine of discovery or domination, as Stephen calls it. Um, and dom is subdue or submission. So even when we have our free dom moralities, it's where we've got the dom in there. We should maybe consider the, the dom part of the, the freedom because it is subliminally adding this domination element. Um, and so I would just say, as we move forward, thinking about the world that they're building that is likely going to be digital, will the heathens be the people who want to remain biological humans, right? And is, and is the religion, is the faith practice that is being imposed, the, the scientism, right? And so where those people were in that moment where, you know, the Vatican on behalf of empire laid out a law that, that justified that transition, that makeover of this continent, the next makeover of the continent as I see it is a virtualization, and that will be done probably using similar tactics because these military folks, they study all of the military tactics, and they know that the, the US military apparatus is very, very interested in asymmetrical warfare and how that happens. And so I would, I would expect, you know, Fort Huachuca is just right down there, that they have a very, very much in their minds the history of what happened in this space and how this applies moving forward. So how did I get here? It's kind of a heavy topic. I really thought I was just fighting school closures. <laughs> you know, I, and I think that's because I have fresh eyes and I'm not immersed in just one thing, I could see a lot. But um, Boston Consulting Group closed a bunch of schools, 23 schools in uh, 2013 in Philadelphia, laid off 3,000 teachers. And at the time, I was still like, a, like NPR listening, like well-meaning liberal person saying, well, that's not fair. That's not fair, you know? And I would show up and I would try to make it fair thinking that it wasn't structured, that the structure wasn't set up for it to be not fair. And so this is me and my friend Tanya were lying in front of Girard College in the driveway and the US, the, the Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce was gonna have a meeting at this uh, private school with has a wall all the way around it and a gate, which was the site of one of the largest uh, Northern civil rights struggles, the integration of Girard College. And they were going to have a secret meeting, not a secret, but you could only go if you were a member to plan out the role of business and education for our city's children. Right, and so so that was my way in. I started mapping money and power. I make these maps, and I, I can't remember the gentleman's name. Someone would probably know better. There's 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 a, there's an activist artist who would make these other big maps, and then I think he he met an early end, unfortunately. But I was using this software, and this is called Little Sis. And actually, they would have like research teams in all these cities, and I never could understand why nobody wanted to look at what I was looking at. And it was because it's funded by the people doing the things I'm looking at. And then ultimately, I keep getting kicked off. But like it was seeing a system, right? And I think for me, that helped very much to say it's not. I think some people will because we've been conditioned to to um, narrowness that it's about, um, you know, I'm this person, those people are the problem, right? That you, it's narrow, they never zoom back. And once you zoom back, you realize it's global, like Michael Crow is as much in Beijing, as Beijing is in Silicon Valley, as they're working, running money for SoftBank, you know, in Japan and the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. It's, they have their own webs of relationships. They're in their own parties and we're not necessarily invited. So, so that's so I would map power and the stories would tell things, these aren't hidden. I look at LinkedIn profiles. I look at webinars. I look at white papers. Like I, nobody drops me a hot tip. 
Like really, I mean, they figure that nobody who would have opposed this agenda would bother looking at what they, they've got their own club. So I dug around in their own club. And then the other piece that clearly what we're dealing with is, is this new version of psychological warfare, which has a long legacy, you know, in you know, the Mockingbird Press and COINTELPRO and, and, but for the most part, I think people here wouldn't think that their government would do, a lot of people wouldn't think their government would do that to them, right? Like, but the indigenous people would think that they, you know, the government would do that to them, right? I mean, there are people who have been victimized by the structure who probably would more readily understand that their government would do that to them. So that's when I say, like, we're all back in this spot now. Like, we need to know, and I'm not saying it in any particular way, but, like, there were people always who knew that the government wasn't necessarily in for their best interest. And so now this, this the Center for the Future of War is at Arizona State University. It's funded largely by Eric uh, New America and Eric Schmidt and Google. And so they have um, four areas of focus, which is autonomous weapons, um, drones, and I can't remember the fourth, but it's weaponized narrative is one of them. So like this was all in the works. And, and clearly at the time that I was looking into this, I didn't realize what the narrative was going to be, but the, the narrative is around the biosecurity state. Um, so, and if you haven't seen any of the work of James Giordano, I would highly recommend it. It's quite unsettling. He's a professor of bioethics at Georgetown, and essentially he does a lot about um, ethics, sort of air quotes, around neuroweapons. So, um, you know, when we're trying to make sense of how this all happened, I think it, we need to take that into account. So, is there a way to make that play? Okay, so this is a clip. Yeah, I'll just introduce it. So this is a clip. Um, Tradoc Army Training uh, Doctrine and Command had a gathering. They have a division called the Mad Scientist Division, and they met at Arizona State. And I think this is 2016. And so Crow is giving the opening remarks, and I edited it down to a shorter clip just to, uh, like to give a little context. One project that we have under the Minerva program coming out of the Secretary of Defense's office is a project where we're looking at functional magnetic resonance imaging outcomes of hate messages from Islamic fundamentalists going into human beings so that we can determine whether or not human beings respond differently to those messages by looking at the actual functionality of their brains. Guess what? It triggers an inner core, deep, antecedent, old, old, old evolutionary characteristic. It's a messaging that triggers, based on our research to date, triggers a certain kind of biological response. Now that we have the means to send out such messaging, now that we have the means to communicate at scale, now that we have the means for all of this complexity, how do we manage this complexity? How do we re be responsive in engagement to conflict, to natural disasters, to biological and chemical disasters? How do we design for complexity? And so the, this mad scientist effort is the first step. You question the present design. Okay. So, so it's important when you look at like the, the military technology. It's, they, there's this frame Giordano talks about dual use, right? And, and I, I think one of the other speakers said there's the reason they give and there's the real reason, right? And so a lot, and not to say that it isn't like that they weren't interested in, in those particular, you know, groups, but if you understand that was embedded within the religious and philosophy division. And I think there's been a lot shared around the health choice um, discussion around neutralizing people's faith. People's faith and their understanding of something larger than themselves is a very much a driving motivator. Now, they framed it within a geopolitical construct, right? So that would make it very palatable. But I, I, I could easily see 
that similar thing being applied to other faith communities or to people who are opposing imposed by uh, medical you know, interventions, right? It's that same, once you develop the technology, I mean, we saw that with the atom bomb, right? Like it's, it's rather indiscriminate. Once it's out of the box, it's out of the box. So this is stuff that has been worked on for quite some time. So um, the other piece of this for me, um, I think I mentioned transhumanism. Um, I have a friend, she was a teacher in second grade in Maine. And she was seeing weird things. Like when you trust your gut, Alana says, trust your gut. When you see things that are weird, like understand that they're connected to something bigger. And so um, she started digging. She created this blog called Save Maine Schools. She's taken a break from it now because she has three little littles right now. But she said, you know, only click this link if you want to go down the rabbit hole. She's like, just so you know, just click this link if you want to go down the rabbit hole. And the link opened to Global Education Futures. And it was directed by Pavel Luksha, and he's out of um, – at Moscow at Skolkovo, which is sort of the Silicon Valley of Russia. And so they had developed essentially a global network of ed tech online education systems for which the U.S. contact was Tom Vander Ark, who is a Gates Foundation guy and created the first uh, virtual school in, in Washington State um, and is now a venture capitalist in ed tech um, in this. And then so, so then down I fell. So one of the things that they have on their website, they would do things called foresight work. So they would take trends and they would project forward. So these weren't things that had necessarily already happened, but they were taking existing technologies and themes and projecting forward. So this is a map that they had for education through 2035. This is just a piece. It's a giant map. But the thing that really jumped out at me was this idea of the people nair. Fortunes made up of people and depending on the quality of the human capital. And then also the forest of minds and that is the hive mind technology that they're working to, to build. So um, again, in addition to you know, who might think that the, the power structure doesn't have their interests at heart, it's indigenous people and enslaved people, right? Because this people there is really going back to an era of enslavement, but it being reframed as we're investing in human capital. But we're investing in human capital for a world that's actually going to be post-human, which is, which is the problem. So the underpinning of this and what I bring that not many other people actively talk about is the human capital bond market part. And this is something that we're seeing now with the rise. Um, it blends both poverty management, um, essentially the privatization of the social welfare net as an investment opportunity to invest in poor people and speculate on that. Um, and that is going to be coming with these biometric uh, medical geofencing programs, <laughs> which is what I call the, the vaccine passports. Um, and because they need interoperable data and they need to track you as an asset. And so that's what the, the passports are for. Um, and if you understand this as a logic principle of capital, with concentrations of wealth and power, wealth in particular, capital must flow or the system falls apart. I mean, if you stop, and that's why at the, after the last economic crash, they said, don't stop spending your money. Go out, keep spending. Because if you stop the whole, you know, everything where it's papered over, it shows and the, thing, the system can't ha happen. So the last global crash was based on uh, securitized debt of housing and real estate. Right? And, and, and how did that happen? Well, they needed a place to put all of that money. These people who were holding all, most of the money, these small number, couple hundred billionaires, need a place to put it. And so they would create synthetic debt products to make that happen, to keep the game going. Well, if you understand that in the decade plus since that happened, the wealth has only become more concentrated and the technology has only become more sophisticated. So the next, the only thing bigger really than real estate to create a synthetic debt product around is humans. Humans in the environment, right? 
And that's where the ESG investing, the environmental investing comes in. So they're developing ways to securitize people as debt products. And you are a debt burden on society. Before you were even born, they will use data analytics to say, you are a debt on society to this degree based on your genomics, based on where you live, based on your parents' educational attainment, or their salaries, or their health profiles. They will make all sorts of pre-crime predictions about you for these gambling products that aren't real. And none of them may ever be real. It's all a fiction. People have to understand these games are fictions, but they are fictions that the most elite, powerful actors have chosen to play together until it's inconvenient for them to play, and then they make a new game. Okay? It doesn't make sense to normal people because normal people wouldn't think like this. Sociopaths think like this, but it already happened. And in many ways, the last global economic crash set the stage because Blackstone came in and bought up all of the, is now the largest private, private rental homeowner, and they're being very repressive in their landlord practices. It, many people never got out of the gig economy. Many people lost all of their assets. It cleared the decks. So when we're looking at mass dispossession, which again, I make akin to the Indian reservations, the smart cities are the next Indian reservation, is the plan at a level that we cannot even quite imagine at this point, if they pull it off, is about that. But it's embedded in managing poverty and economic dispossession. It's an intended economic dispossession because it's that the people have been pushed out of their jobs because they will, they will say, in order to get our data to run these deals and to grow our budget, now your children will be taught by robots. Now your elderly parents will be cared for by robots. Now your mental health system will be a robot or an algorithm or a chatbot. All of these things are because that is the demand of this new economy, is to replace humans with systems. And to do that, it, 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 they're not just going to kill everybody, right? Because they actually have to learn us. Part of it, like they need to, like, it's like a parasite. It's like a vampire. They need to learn us and leave us as husks. So for a while anyway, like they're going to sort of work on this thing and they're going to do it through poverty management. And poverty management has been a problem for a very, very long time. But now with digital identity and the, this securitized debt, it's going to be much worse. So these are the asset classes. Um, I guess many of you are probably familiar, if you have global connections, how repressive things have been in Australia, right? So Australia is a center for a lot of this. Again, it's an island. It's, it's, there's a lot of defense contracting there. Um, they're, they're able to impose these systems. They're, they're, they piloted the first smart blockchain social impact bond there. And this is a document that was done for Boston Consulting Group for the Australia Post. Okay, and this is all of the data that they're imagining because to them that is all profit and control, all part of the larger system. And that's the World Economic Forum is talking about personal data as a new asset class. Okay, so this is about market shaping. And I'm not saying this with any, like, it is what it is, you know. It, it's about creating markets, and the markets are in data. And it's, it, I think I, I cropped that picture, but it's actually a woman jogging, and she's being chased by her data which is quite a striking image. You know, like it's, it's not a comforting image. The other th thing I will say about Australia is they've already piloted blockchain programmable money for disability benefits. Okay, so that's, they're a test bed for a lot of these things. Um, here are just some more images. The Internet of Bodies, if you haven't heard of that, I highly recommend look, putting, just put that in, a, in an online search and see what it comes up with. Uh, two or three years ago, I saw my first reference to the Internet of Humans. That's Roberto Viola. He's head of telecom for the EU. And I thought, whoa, since when did we volunteer to join the internet? <laughs> you know, like, 
like, what does that mean, the Internet of Humans, right? And this is, again, coming through the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, when I was working on education work, there's something called LENA that's connected with the University of Chicago and I believe Rice, where you can see they're slipping a digital counter in that pocket and that they put onesies on babies and then put surveillance listening devices on them to make sure that poor parents talk to their children enough, that they use the right words. Okay, that they can be commodified, that the, that the parent-child relationship can be commodified in that way. And it's framed as social justice. It's framed as we care about these children, not to mention what other health consequences are of having. Now, I, I don't know if like they frame it as you just do that for a few days and then we get your data profile on how you talk to your children, right? But people would say, well, why would you do that? I would never do that. Well, you will do that if your food, if they've taken you away from your job and the only way you can give food to your children is that you have to participate in the program. And that's, it's not, a, it's not going to be a voluntary thing. It's not like, I mean, there are some crazy people in Silicon Valley who just want to digitize everything and wear every device, but most, most people would not make this choice. Um, as you can see, the internet of bodies, they're, um, you know, normalizing prosthetics, microchip implants, cochlear implants, uh, mind control for depression, uh, fertility measurements, uh, tooth-mounted sensors, augmented reality glasses. This is from a report by called um, the Internet of Bodies, uh, Risks and Opportunities, <laughs> and it, by Rand. Rand got commissioned to do this, and it was Swiss Reinsurance, a former executive of Swiss Reinsurance that was managing. It's an actuarial program, right? And, I mean, they've got a Bluetooth baby diaper and an anti-drowning monitor and a sleep-tracking onesie. So these are all things I wish that this was not real. Like, I wish that I did not have to come and tell you that there are people out there thinking that this is the world that they're imagining. And, it, and I, I very much hope, and like with all of our energetic presence, that we don't get there. But I think we have to actually understand, the, if you understand the tactics that are going to be used against you, you'll be better positioned. Because most of it is framed in very nice terms, very nice terms. Um, so one of the key figures in all of this, his name is uh, Jim Heckman. He, uh, as out of the University of Chicago, Nobel Prize winner, you know, the academics are all into this. They legitimize it with their policy uh, procedures and develop the equations for these markets. His market was for uh, early childhood. And so that includes everything from prenatal care all the way up to third grade. So if you ever wondered, like, the push behind the third grade's test scores, it's because it's an impact market. If you ever, like, start to prick up about universal pre-K, Universal pre-K is there because it's an impact market. And Goldman Sachs did the first uh, uh, social impact bond for universal, uh, pre it wasn't universal, it was a pilot, a social impact bond pilot for pre-K in Salt Lake City. Okay, Salt Lake City is a hotbed of state intelligence and biotech and ed tech and everything else. So they, they piloted this pre-K program and they said, okay, this is how it works. If um, we're going to screen kids with our tool. Like, we have a tool that's going to tell us who we can fix. Because we, these children, once we've done our tool, they, they will be a burden. And if we can fix them before we can become, they're a burden, we'll save money. Look, so they predictively profile kids into being the burden before they've even done anything wrong. And then say, look, we fixed them. And look, so this slice of difference, we'll take that money in between. So they, they, they put 100 kids in pre-K funded by Goldman Sachs. Now, Goldman Sachs is a key party in these social impact bonds. They have industrial banks, and they're setting it all up. Um, as Ian Galloway, the San Francisco Fed said, there's one thing like you can say about social impact bonds. Like everyone is different except Goldman Sachs's fingerprints are in all of them, right? So this is a Goldman Sachs. Now it won't stay that way, but for now. And guess what? Of the, after their pre-K, they only had uh, one of the 100 kids got uh, needed special education. That was the cost offset. They said if we give them pre-K, they won't need special education. 
Well, the people, even on the New York Times, said that's bogus. Because even if you gave them stellar, like, you know, uh, um, you know, Waldorf pre-K and every, you know, uh, you know, tiny class sizes, you would not only have one of those 100 kids needing special education. There's a game here. And, and those of us at the time, I was really focused on public education and looking at the charters. And, like, you could see how you can game the numbers. And we saw that in the earlier presentation about the, um, the exemptions. You can game the numbers. However, once you make it a number, you can game the number. Um, so either the, these were children who were deprived services, or maybe they were kids who, like, had English as a second language or something and were never going to need special education. They just needed some time. So it's a racket, guys. And the, the thing is, so Pritzker, this is funded by Open Society, this equation, the uh, Human Capital Economic Opportunity Group at, at Chicago. So it's like George Soros is funding the Becker Friedman School of Economics. So, like, I mean, just... Like when I say we've got to get out of our boxes, we've got to get out of our boxes because they're all in on it. It's a matter of the people in power who are running this game. Um, and so J.B. Pritzker, who at the time is now governor but wasn't then, they went up and down California pitching universal pre-K so they could run their data bonds. And But they said, you know, we can't use the data. IQ doesn't really work. Cognitive, it doesn't move enough. They didn't say for that the hedge fund markets, but it doesn't move for hedge fund markets. He said what we actually can change is character. We can change character, okay? So now that once you understand all of these um, Sesame Workshop apps and PBS Kids apps and these apps, it's about behavior. It's about digital behavior change. And so one of the companies that you'll see on the, on the one side, We Play Smart, it's Hatch Education. So what they did was they actually developed, that is an interactive play table that's like a, a flat screen TV that's, that's parallel to the floor. There's two fisheye lens cameras on either side, and the children are supposed to play together at that table, and then it scores their social behavior on a rubric. Now, I have net, and it has facial recognition on it, and it goes to a permanent record, okay? And so they're going to sell this as pre-K. Now, do we, do parents need affordable childcare? Totally. Or do we need an economy where not, like, you can have a parent stay at home and take care of the kids? That would be great if that's their choice, you know, like, they, but they make false choices. So you, now you're in an economy where, like, you know, a two-adult household needs three jobs to get by, and you need affordable childcare, and then that's the choice that's going to be given to you. And when I found out that Mike, uh, that kinder care, that Michael Milken was a primary investor in kinder care, you start to understand corporate childcare a lot better, right? And this isn't, this didn't come out of nowhere. That's been long, long time coming. Um, there's this guy Tom Luce who's with Texas 2035, 2036, I think, and he's working with the Fed there on this. And he's like you know, I'd really just like my companies to like have the kids from the age of two to college and we'll, you know, and they'll just cream up the kids they want, right? They'll just train their workforce. But if there's no autonomy in that, like what happens if you get trapped on a corporate campus and you're a poet, you know, for goodness sakes, I don't know what happens. So this is, this is all real. Like I've made this panopticon, sort of this infographic, cause I'm trying to distill it. And I know we're going to have a, a talk about 5G in a bit, but it all runs on the telecommunication infrastructure. I didn't know there was 6G, I don't know, maybe up to 10G at this point, biosense there's something called the powder network in Salt Lake City. But it's, it's, it's digitizing your frequency, and that's why I think like the good energy part is so important. It's signals intelligence and it's frequency, and it's happening in ways that we may not, I can't put a math equation to it, some people might, but they're manipulating that. So I have from the bottom the level of the panopticon, which is tied, this will all be tied to your digital identity, and that is what the medical passports are about, is to create the interoperable permanent record tied to your biometrics. So it will start with your cells and your DNA, down with nanotech and biosensors, 
They will track your minds and emotions, and this is all through technology. They will track your physical activity and location. They will track you in your house. They will track who you interact with. They will track, track you where you move in and outside of your house and in your larger community. They will track you where you work or go to school. They will track if you're compliant with the protocols, the pathways that they have put you on because everyone will be put on a self-improvement pathway for the future. That is the game that we're gonna talk about. They will say how productive are you on your pathway and that's you know what Patrick talks about with the technocracy, it's you know, energy credits. What do we put into you? What do we get out of you? Are we getting our, our money's worth? And then ultimately, what is your threat score? Because most of this stuff is running through the fusion centers. The, 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 um, it's, the data zone is the pilot interoperable data system for the children. It fed to the Silicon Valley uh, Regional Data Trust, and then that feeds to the National Interoperability Collaborative, which is partnered with the Council on Crime and, Ju and Delinquency and the Fusion Centers. And it's mostly health and human services data. So this is, I wish that this was not true, but this is like, we have to stop the internet of bodies and we have to stop the, the EMF radiation telecom systems. Um, this is my friend Joseph. He's brilliant. I have a web webinar on my um, YouTube page. Uh, we did this last August. He is a uh, combat veteran um, and uh, a brilliant mathematician. He is great with, uh, he's done AI work, he's done blockchain work, he's done actuarial work, he's done gaming video game design. And he tells me pretty much like the, um, the video game design world is, a ro uh, uh, you know, the revolving door with the military. It's military simulation, video game simulation, military. These people, they're all part of the same overall network. So he's building a, a, a video game of technocracy to try to illustrate to the kids like what this actually is going to look like in a way that is on their level. And to use his gifts because he's actually made tremendous sacrifices personally because he can't be a part of this anymore. So he's building his own game to try to educate and using his gifts. So this is one, I know you guys have autonomous vehicle pilots in Arizona, right? And so you've got the vehicle and they come up and like the ball runs out into the street and they're like, okay, well, who gets hit? Like, what is the outcome of this? And then there's real time things of like, okay, what, who, where does this autonomous car swerve? that is getting built into these algorithms, who's valued and who is not valued in this equation and taking that out. And that's a really r real thing that we need to think about. So again, this is, an, this is an infographic that I've done that talks about pay for success. You can see essentially austerity um, is the basis for all of it. If the government doesn't have access to resources, like theoretically, if we had a government that was accountable to people, right, that you could vote in and out, that that, that actually really worked, um, then, then you would, you would people would pay their taxes equally and they wouldn't have offshore banking and there would be money to take care of people who needed it and, and that sort of thing. But austerity is the precondition. They set up essentially outcomes-based government contracts. So these date back to the mid-90s with Arthur Rolnick and the Minneapolis Federal Reserve. Um, but those contracts are now going to, I think, ultimately blend with the Internet of Bodies and Ethereum smart contracts, okay? And it will all be framed as transparency, accountability. Don't you want your government to be more accountable? Don't you want them to do good? You know, and so it's like, do we want them to do really a really good job of brainwashing toddlers on the surveillance play tables? Like, what are those outcome sets? Like, that's, that's what this looks like. And then, so they set a narrow metric, like the special education, you know, for the pre-K that they don't need it. The investors invest. Now, these investors, when we're talking about it, part of it is like our own complicity, right? I mean, these are the largest asset holders. There's something called the Impact Management Project. They're running not just the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund or the Vatican Bank or all of this, this other money, but then there's pension funds. Like if you have a pension, they're investing in stuff that will be these impact bonds. So it like, 
we're all woven into this web. Like we all have to untangle it. The investors invest and then they securitize the debt. Now the securitization is where the big shorting comes in. So imagine the scenario with the kid and the ball in the street and the augmented reality and the algorithmic measuring of whose life is worth what, and you add in global uh, hedge funds, shorting systems, right? Because you've got smart environments. So what if someone has taken out a program on your life that is, like they think someone is investing that you succeed on your pathway of life improvement and someone is betting that you don't, right? And I sort of say, I have terrible luck with the bus. Like my family, they come up, the bus always comes like in five minutes. Like I show up, it's like, oh, it's on, you know, it's, it's redirected and we didn't bother to put up the sign and like I'm waiting for 45 minutes. So imagine you're someone who's like put on a work, you know, welfare to work program and like you're going to be cut off of your UBI if you don't, you know, make it to this interview and get this job and you're waiting for the bus with your smart pass and the sensor senses that, oh, it's you waiting for the bus here? I'm going to send that bus around. Like so you, like the world can start to conspire for you or against you depending on like your position in it. And it starts to sound a bit like Black Mirror, but I don't know unless we start talking about the ethics of what we're building, like how it would not go there, like knowing like how the history of domination tends to go. So there's, there's a securitization. The other piece is this outcomes-based contract allows everyone to be under perpetual surveillance under so that we can be accountable to the government, right? Everybody, like we need to know what, where our money's going. So we need to watch you all the time, especially you poor people who might like rise up. We can't have that. Everybody six feet apart, please. You know, like that's that's the thing. And so then they have they add in the third party. So like, oh, well, just so you know, we're not ripping off the system. We've got this outside person looking in at us to like let us know if 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 this deal is right, if you really met the metrics. Well, Palantir, the pilot programs, I have a friend who's in Santa Clara County, California, which is where this is being piloted, which is like we're started by Santa Clara University and Catholic Relief Services, and 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 Newsom is an alum of that university and it's a social impact university, they're test bedding these for pre-K, for early literacy, for uh, mental health, and for housing in Santa Clara as the test bed. Palantir was the data evaluator for the mental health and housing. So Palantir is involved in like predictive policing and border patrol and all sorts of other stuff. So like imagine you're somebody, you know, in Santa Clara County and you need housing and you're, so Palantir gets your data? You know, that's intense. That's a pretty intense thing. So no one's talking about this. So then the deal either gets paid and the shorting happens or it doesn't happen and it goes forward. So so that is that is sort of this web of how this all works. So everything is reduced to an equation. What they really want, which is disturbing, and again, this is one of these traps. I'm trying to show you the trap. Um, I came into this fighting standardized testing. And, and um, you know, the high-stakes testings were used to close our schools. Well, now you're hearing social-emotional learning. You're right. It's not just about reading and math. You're right. We, we, we care about everything. We care about the whole child. We care about your whole child. We'd like to measure everything. Can we measure their art? Can we measure their gym? Can we measure their music? Can we measure, you know, we have these brainwave headbands now. We'd really like to measure the whole child. And so this is what's coming is, and they, people, you're, you're like, you're right. We do care about the whole child. Like, and then you don't know that it means brainwave headbands. Like no one's going to tell you that till later. So um, this guy, Clive Belfield, he's at Teachers College, Columbia University. So he did the equation, like he's working with UNESCO and the global. OECD people and to say, well, if we do a social emotional learning curriculum, like we can prevent children from being juvenile delinquents or whatever. It's going to be great. 
And so I actually went to the Dirksen Senate building several years ago when they were all, they had seed money. It's called the Social Impact Partnerships Pay for Results Act, or CIPRA. And it's totally bipartisan. This is 100%, like I saw it for myself, that all of the keynote speakers were elected Republicans. All of the panelists were Obama technocracy people. And the whole room was full of like 200 nonprofits and like think tank leaders. Like it was like me and my friend were the only two regular people in the room. And they were just like, bring it on, champagne and strawberries. Like we're, this is coming. And but after the Q&A with the policy about these impact bonds, um, there's a q and I'm always really pretty good at getting the first question. So I go up and I go, okay, so I know that in Massachusetts they're talking about like middle school doing a social emotional curriculum. So where do they stop getting tracked? Right? Like, where do they stop? Because at kindergarten, that kindergarten, that pre-K one, they stopped at kindergarten. They would be like, oh, do you need special education or not? Okay, the deal is done, and now you, you may proceed. Clean the slate. What happens, like, it, so the, out, the cost offsets for the social-emotional were addiction and depression and incarceration. So say you get swept into a, a, you know, a program in sixth grade because you filled out some survey that, that you're going to be a pre-crime person, and they bet on you. Like, what happens when you're 35 and the robot stole your job and you need therapy and there's some smart credit token that pops up, you know? Oh, this kid got the, you know, and readjust, recalibrate the impact, you know, the investment market for the hedge funds because that's going to be the permanent record, right? And I would think how, at the time, I didn't fully have a handle on blockchain. I'm like, how are they going to, but I asked that to the, the, the panel. And this is the woman from Goldman Sachs. This is like the head of, he was Obama's social impact guy, David Wilkinson. He's now in Connecticut running like, early childhood and health and human services. I'm like, how does this work? And they didn't really have a good answer. And then afterwards, I had four consultants run over with cards saying, I can make an equation for that. I can make and like, they didn't understand that I thought it was horrific. Like, no one could even imagine that there was somebody in the room who would be like, that's really bad. Like, did you ever do anything in middle school that you wouldn't want tracked for the rest of your life? For Goldman Sachs to make a buck? You know, it's terrible. So the other piece is like Ready Nation is a part of this. There's something called Council for a Strong America. And again, this is something where I think they whip sort of the national like elements. Like people want to feel patriotic. Council for a Strong America. Well, we're going to make sure that the children are aligned with the workforce. That's Ready Nation. With the police, with the military, um, with uh, athletics, and with evangelical Christianity. And those were the five topics. And Ready Nation was the workforce alignment. That's what their speculation was going to be on. It's not backed by good people. Like you wouldn't, I would think if you're a person of faith, you wouldn't join up with someone who was aligning kids to be in line with the military and the police on all of these things. Um, and so they all went, Ready Nation, it was a global forum in New York City in 2018, and they rang the NASDAQ bell. And they put up these billboards saying, look, we're going to have, a, a, it's great to have so many private sector leaders gathered in New York to discuss the importance of early learning and workforce development. So when people say, like, how did this happen? And I'll be like, they told us. Like, they told us it was happening. They told us. And I didn't, this was pre-COVID, so I don't, you know, I didn't know how fast. I thought I had, like, seven to ten years, literally. It's going a lot faster. So social impact, uh, social finance is a key player in this. Um, Sir Ronald Cohen, he's in the U.K., um, you know, I think largely this is also a crown enterprise. Um, you know, I think when I talk about this digital video game and the digital twinning that they're going to do, in some ways it's this idea of the securitized straw man just coming out into the open as like an, a cartoon avatar, but like there's a synergy there. And if you guys, I know some people are more, it's not my depth of knowledge, but in that movement, in that space, like understand the resonance there. Again, Cohen is very connected. His 
uh, former father-in-law, now deceased. He was the, the captain of the Exodus. So there's a lot of connections crown-wise between US, UK, Israel, tech, high-tech, biotech, nanotech. Um, they're doing stuff called career impact bonds, and they're doing it with the governor of New Jersey, former Goldman Sachs, nice Democrat, okay? So they're setting up for all the people dispossessed out of their jobs by lockdown. You can now um, do in income sharing agreements, which means your future wages are garnished for your, to pay for your training. Not only your training, your social services while you're getting trained, like your childcare, um, to do coding, big pharma, or energy. So you can build the prison planet. Like your choice, if you're you know, someone who got pushed out of your work, you're a, you know, a waitress or something, is to help code the prison planet and be in under subject to these didn't like financial instruments. These career impact, Phil Murphy, this is already happening, this is coming. Um, CUC ASU GSV, um, Michael Crow is very well connected with Global Silicon Valley. They've been running annual conferences co combining ed tech for a long time. Uh, this was a panel in 2018 about income sharing agreements which essentially said that they're going to securitize them. And that's exactly what I've said about the securitization market. They're gonna securitize this as education and training debt. They were talking about four-year college, but clearly it's not gonna be about four-year college because their goal is there won't be any college. There won't be anything but perpetual skill, credit, quest, task, Pokemon Go education. There will be no discrete, except for the super elite, maybe Yale, and you know, a couple of those things will make it through. But um, they're securitizing people. This is, you know, again, ties back to Arizona with ASU ZSV, they're talking about it. Um, there are a couple of, and I'm gonna share my slide deck after this. I would highly recommend looking at these two stories because they, they go into things that sound science fiction, but they're not. One is out of slate about shorting people's futures. And then when people don't perform to value, like hired assassins to like kill them off. And then the other one is the domestic front and it's about um, a really depressed person, an autonomous vehicle has stolen their partner and, they, and they're depressed in the smart house and like what it looks like. So this is from the first, the Slate article, but they're talking about um, the last paragraph. It was a highly liquid market at the top end that allowed for an entirely new asset of equities and derivatives. And the prodigies, these are students, prodigy asset groups were uh, particular risk levels and in industry clusters. And the average investor didn't even have to research the assets. They could bet on demand for a certain profession. It was a casino, but instead of betting on black or red, the vote was on whether a high school kid was going to be successful. And Sophia was good at making the bet. So they're already normalizing this. Um, this is this is a map that I did of the uh, the ASU GSV panel. Uh, Edly is the platform they're going to use to do the securitization of income sharing agreements. And no big surprise on why National Press is not covering this. The co-founder of the securitization platform, his name is Christopher Riccardi. He's the grandfather of collateralized debt obligations. <laughs> I mean, he it's not he's doing exactly the same thing that happened in the real estate all over again with training debt. And training debt is essentially your prison sentence because prison is no longer gonna be in a physical prison, it's going to be you in the digital panopticon on a pathway. So the other thing I wanna make really clear, um, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later because I know in the libertarian space and even in like the freedom space, there's a lot of, like people are still trying to figure out about blockchain and about crypto and about assets. And my frame, because I came at this through digital identity, not through the money side. I was looking at it when they were talking about putting babies on blockchain and going as a mom, heck no, you don't put people on blockchain, right? And so there's this struggle because for the most part, people who are 
maybe feeling like that's a liberation are less likely to want to know about putting babies on blockchain, that maybe that's not such a good thing. But the other thing is these smart contracts, is that in this augmented reality that is going to be built with the QR codes, it's built on its contracts. So for a long time, the lawyers and the accountants are going to be doing really well for themselves until the robots take over their jobs because they're going to make the contracts. It'll be like, um, am I allowed to have the box lunch? Do the QR code and find out. It's like a giant, you know, can you get on the bus? Can you get that bird scooter thing? Can you open your refrigerator? Everything is dependent on if you have a token in your wallet that says you're allowed to do it. So your rights are mediated digitally in this way. So people who are focused on the Constitution, and again, I would say like these folks realized that that was never written for them, but now I think it's not, it's, you will never get to that. There will be a layer of digital transactions that will never even keep you from getting down to a real human right, constitutional right. We will live in a state of exception run on digital contracts. So in this, this gentleman, it opens with he's, you know, had a tough night and he's negotiating with his toaster because he's depressed and he's asking his toaster to, um, you know, print uh, toast images of despots like like that's his, I don't know. And, and they're like, I just really want to do kittens. You know, is that okay? And it's all run on a smart contract. Like they're like, well, it's, could you use a public domain? It'd be cheaper. Like, and he's having these interactions with non-human entities. And that is, I mean, it's kind of grotesque, but that, that is what is being planned. And it's being implemented in, in ways that if you don't know the bigger picture or the, the power structure behind it, you, Anyway, so smart, yeah, so this is smart homes, yeah, this is the second bit. So the, the, the toaster had been provided by the Transhumana Wellness Group, so this is all health pathways. And if you have breakfast, it lowers your risk of heart disease. But, you know, it's talking about that he was drunk on the floor and, you know, peeing in his sink because he didn't want his smart toilet to narc on him. So, you know, that's, you know, that's, um, that's, that's what they're envisioning, right? But it's like your wellness, your wellness toaster would like to print you some kittens now on your toast. Is that okay? Is that okay? You know, that's, that's and because you're alone, because, you know, the autonomous car has stolen your partner and you're, you're not allowed outside. Um, so it sounds, but in reality, so there's this other piece. So this is from a paper from Israel. Now, Israel is like very advanced, like as the U.S. and much of this and much of the tech space, and they have social services. So again, in the U.K., like it, it's 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 injecting its top this digital toxin into existing social service systems, which I can say probably never worked perfectly, but like they that's flowing through the veins of that. So so um, countries that have socialized healthcare systems um, are are prime targets for having this be incubators. So in this, um, there's a whole webinar that I did with the state of Rhode Island about um, e-government solutions and using COVID to push everything online into digital government systems. Estonia is the model, but um, essentially Rhode Island was like, hey, sign me up. Like, we want to be just like Israel. And they mentioned um, this thing called the rights engine. And again, it's framed as here are your wonderful benefits. Can't we tell you, depending on who you are, this lovely complement of benefits that we have to offer you, right? Like, oh, you're, you, you've reached this particular age. Now you have access to these wonderful benefits. And they, it's always this dual use, right? They don't say, by the way, now your benefits are, your government benefits are going to be digitally mediated and tied to smart contracts and conditional probably on how you behave or how compliant you are to the program. Um, I mean, the other thing I will just say is also, like, Israel is a, is a primary focus for transhumanism. So a lot of that technology and the nanotech and the biosensors interfaces with this overall transhumanist program. This is from a publication. This is 2010. This is 2010, right? I'm like, 11, 12 years ago. Um, and it, it's called H+. So they're talking about human plus. You know, it's, it's all framed as... Um, augmentation, augmentation of the human, but without understanding that the, the thing in which that is being augmented is a militarized technology. 
So here I will say, like this is from the Attorney General, you guys have a FinTech incubator uh, that's doing all sorts of interesting digital currency programs now, and they're talking about doing income sharing agreements, right? Um, the FinTech sandbox. So this income sharing agreement thing, you should be on people's radar because it is here in Arizona. Um, I'm just gonna bump back to Pavel Luksha. He was with the uh, Global Education Futures, the Hieronymus Bosch, um, you know, we want to have people nares and, and hive minds. He was connected at the time, like when I first saw him with world skills, world skills. And I didn't understand what the skill building was at the time. I guess world skills. Well, clearly because they need the new skills or to build the digital jail. Um, and so he was talking about using project-based learning and using the skills. These income sharing agreements are going to be hooked into wearable technology and virtual reality. And so your apprenticeship, like you could be an apprenticeship to like, a drone manufacturer in your bedroom in an outfit, and they'll rent you the outfit, right? Like that's how this thing is gonna go with the world skills. And what I didn't quite process at the time was that the data harvest off of you acting out the behaviors that they want you to act out is your training protocol, because they're never gonna give you the job, or very few people are ever actually gonna get the job. You have to perform as though you're being trained for the job. They're harvesting your biometrics, and they're harvesting how you walk, and how you think, and how all of these things to feed the robots. Um, so, like, and this is part of the workforce capital flows. So again, transitioning to the fourth industrial revolution from the knowledge economy to this Next phase of globalization that's built on telepresence and platform labor with haptics. Um, so they talk about reframing and reimagining workforce developments as investments leading to scalable solutions and measurable outcomes. So everything has to be measurable. So whenever you see impact or measurable or even accountability or transparency, understand behind the scenes they're talking about data analytics and then underneath the data analytics is essentially um, coercive uh, surveillance technologies. So this is coming out of uh, the, the Federal Reserve System. Again, this is a crown <laughs> venture too, and um, they're the ones that are going to be doing this. There's a lot of connections to University of UT Austin, and they had done a lot around like welfare reform. So we have to see this as this, again, this dependency, the Indian reservation, we have, we have dispossessed you, we have taken your practice, we have imposed our will on what we think you should be doing as a civilized entity, and then we will profit off of that system. Um, but this is Pavel Luksha's slide share. You know, people can look it up, but he's, he's pretty straight up saying, like, they're developing a neural roadmap towards transhumanism, and again, this is, 20, this is 2014. And they're talking about every aspect of life being affected, from your education, entertainment, healthcare, social, public art. All of this, run, security and defense, urban living, all of it runs on the blockchain, and all of it is tied to your digital identity. And they're harvesting people into the machine. And so that's, I talked about the social emotional learning. So some of you, I don't know if people are familiar with Cardano and like Ava, the blockchain system. So um, uh, Hoskinson, they just signed up the largest digital identity program pilot for uh, students and teachers in Ethiopia. So they've got 5 million kids. Now it's not health one. And like most people in the health space can't mesh the health passports to the education vouchers. They don't see the connection. They're like, oh, but I'm really concerned about vaccines. I'm really, you know, I'm really concerned about health choice. They're, and don't talk to me about education right now. We have to talk about health stuff. I'm like, no, it's a structure. The structure is all, it's a through line. So in Cardano, they've actually said that they're doing workforce training to train the people to build the blockchain. Um, they're gonna train, they, the emphasis is on girls, particularly because, um, uh, 
Girls are Gender Equity United Nations Sustainable Development Goal 5 project. So, and in my, my sense is there's a darker element that if you, I think, I think they want the maternal feminine. I think they want the sacred feminine in this. If you are trying to re hijack into a new evolutionary trajectory of a silicon-based world, they need to eliminate biological, you know, they need to eliminate that piece. So like women and particularly, I think people, cultures that are still connected more directly to their natural base, they need to be eliminated first. So the, Cardano's going in, they're gonna take over Africa. They're, they've set up online education systems with digital identities for those kids. They have partnered with OpenCog and Hanson Robotics. So that's Ben Gertzel, that's Sophia the robot over there. Okay, they developed a lab in Ethiopia. They, I can't remember, it's the Sheba Valley maybe. This is Silicon Valley of Ethiopia of Africa. It's the tech center. They've actually brought in, and people might speculate, but they've said, like, they taught her, it's. Amharic, I think, the, Ethi the language of Ethiopia, they said Ethiopia is very special. And after English, they taught her Amharic. Okay, so there's the whole Gnostic piece and Sophia, the robot, right? And um, they're going to, I think, feed the data, think of the headsets, into the robots. And it's pretty intense. And then beyond, underneath that is um, Nubian VR. That's another, you know, an African girl in Africa. UNICEF is partnering to get VR education in throughout, it's India, Africa, and also they have a pilot in Chile. And they're saying, um, it's just a disconnect. It's to disconnect you from the, 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 and I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. But behaviorism, the robots cannot learn all the things, right? They are not nearly as sophisticated. And don't be bummed out, because like, we're super powerful. We just don't know exactly what we're doing yet, but we'll get there. Like, but they can only think really narrowly, right? So everything has to be really behaviorist. So if the robots are gonna learn from us, they have to confine us. They have to confine us physically. They have to confine us mentally. Like the emoticon thing, how are you feeling? I don't know, let me give you these choices. And if I give you these choices, I can learn you, because that's a Pattern. I can learn your pattern, but you can't. You can't do a choice that's not on there. You can only do the choices I give you. Um, it's Skinnerism, like it's it's connected to the Skinnerist behavior, narrow um, programmed behaviors. In the Tea Party, this is the PBS Kids app because they're after the little kids and their behaviors. If you don't share your cookies right, the app knows and it will prompt you and it'll say you need to share your cookies right. And that's connected to Heckman, the Heckman equation. And essentially, he was saying they're talking about these PBS Kids apps. And this is on YouTube at the University of Chicago's like human capital economic opportunity group on social emotional learning. And he's invited all of these esteemed researchers into the room and they're saying, well, we can't get the parents to make the kids play the apps. It's like a two part app, like it tracks the parents and it tracks the kids because it's always double. We can't get the parents to make the kids. They say they're going to do it and then they never do. I don't know, the guy's like, I don't know what to do. And then Heckman, you know, he's like, hmm, well, you know, you're acting like the parents are experts. And they're not experts. They're not experts at all. You just need a, you need to gamify it for them. You need it like a game. I, but it has to have a good incentive. It's a good incentive, like, hmm, pornography. Yeah, that's a good incentive. And you can see all the people's, like, heads in the room, just, like, in this, like, oak-paneled room, and, and they're like, did he just say that? You know, he's like a seven-year-old, like, one old prize-winning economist. Like, he just, he's like, well, no, just kind of kidding about that. But, I mean, a good incentive, right? And so I went to an event, like, with, they were trying to capture all of our nonprofit media with the community relations of our NPR station. And I said, hey, listen, I just watched this thing. This is really bad. Like, you guys have to get a handle on these apps and tracking kids' behaviors. And she just looked at me and she said, well, what do you want me to do about it? We all take the money. She said, I built my career on Ford Foundation grants. And so I'm like, well, I didn't take the money. <laughs> I think that's pretty sh terrible. You know, like, I'm, we're, we shouldn't be doing this. Like, we shouldn't be doing this. And if your NPR station is going to do that to kids. Like, I'm going to talk to whoever else is willing to put them, their bodies between them and their kids to stop this from happening. 
So, and they say, who's the they? Who's the they? Well, I always say impact management project. That's a good start because it's about money and power. But then there's functionaries, right? There are people who are groomed up to do this. So this is a woman I just found. Um, I have a friend who's brilliant. I highly recommend. There's a blog called A Piece of Mindful. Um, it's, a, it's a collective blog, and sh she blogs under the pen name Steffers, like Stephanie, but just Steffers. And she has a bunch on nanotechnology that are really brilliant. And she's like, Allison, I have this 900-page book on transhumanism. And I go, she calls me, and I'm like, well, do they think it's bad? And they're like, no, they think it's good. <laughs> she's like wading through this book. And one of them, she gave me this paper. She sent this paper to me. She's like, yep, there's a whole section on blockchain and transhumanism. I'm like, okay. You know, I wish, like, I wish anyone who's out there pushing crypto would actually read the hive mind blockchain part first before they like go all in because that would be helpful. But this woman wrote the paper on crypto mines, essentially talking about using tokens to engage in like collective consciousness with machines. It's really intense, like collective consciousness with other people and machines. And I think like these Facebook rooms and things are pre like predecessors to this space. But who could even conceptualize that someone would think that you would do such a thing? But like she's coming out of, you know, telecom and, you know, she's teaching at Singularity University and the Lifeboat Foundation, Luxes with the Lifeboat Foundation. Like there are real people who are pursuing this in pretty intense ways. Now, again, let's just hope that our collective... Um, transmutation against that will we'll stop it in its tracks, but these people are out there. Um, again, 2008, uh, the Institute of Creative Technologies, which is at UC, uh, USC, it's essentially Hollywood meets the Army. It's funded by the Army Military Lab and one of the high execs of Disney, and they came together to develop synthetic people. So they're like, you know, we like simulations. You like simulations. Let's get together and put our best heads together on what we can simulate, right? And now we, we're ending up with metahumans, which is, you know, hey, we can have a Star Wars movie and put a dead person in it because we've captured them and, like, reinserted. We can blur the line between life and real. Um, but so I'm, I'm still two, right? Okay, so digital twins... They're going to do this on blockchain through electronic health record. That starts the armature of the twinning process. Um, electronic health records, uh, Zeke Emanuel at Penn, getting the American Affordable Care Act in place with the electronic health records. That's, it's coming both through blockchain education, uh, medical passporting, also electronic health records. Eventually, it'll all merge. Uh, in Japan, they're looking at doing um, their goal. This is the government of Japan, Science and Technology Agency, in December 2019 is saying that they are anticipating a future of where we use remote avatars and robots and 3D images as proxies, and it is empowering. It's all in the disability rights community. They're saying like, hey, isn't it great? Like we should now all just live through avatars and it will be equal and it will be like diverse and we will all be like that that's, and, and it's important to know that that's Nippon Telegraph and Telephone and then that is um, also SoftBank that is running the largest AI innovation fund. So, and again, you guys are familiar with the software of life, but again, they're, they're looking to turn this into a planetary computer. Um, you know, look up the internet of bio nano things, like things I never wanted to learn about, but it really is, they're talking about that the, there will be interfaces between the electrical domain of the internet and the biochemical domain of internet of bio nano things networks, the ultimate frontier, seamless interconnections, the cyber world and the biological world. And this guy, Ian Achilles at Georgia Tech, and like, again, Georgia Tech is a highly militarized, just like um, Arizona State. Um, university. So yeah, we the mad scientists are out there, and this is this is the future that they're doing. Oh, so you know what? Why don't we hit this one, and then I'll, if that works. And so this is again, this is just another clip from the same talk with the human beings that are arriving to us now. They're not the same species as you. They're Homo sapiens sapien dot net. I mean this in all seriousness. They are not the same species as you. 
they have never lived without access to some kind of a virtual supercomputer attached to their body. We have to figure out what that homo sapiens sapien.net is. How does that person learn? How can that person be influenced? How can you communicate with that person? And so the conflicts of the future are all going to have to then realize that there is a huge transformation in human evolution. All right. <laughs> I mean, let's like, tell you, it's on YouTube. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not, I don't, I don't. So let, let me do, I'll, I'll, yeah, I think, yeah, I get, oh, you know what? Oh, oh, one last one. So let me see. So, so, so this is, so they call this centaurs, the human uh, interface. This is from a DARPA, a woman who was formerly a DARPA, now it's something called platypus. They're saying they want to combine, like, the, pattern recognition of AI with the, you know, empathy of humans or whatever. And it's, and it's really interesting. So this, I'm in Philly. Um, you know, when I talk about, like, there's something mystical that is arising here. Like, I don't think that the, this, that, I have a friend and he's developed a website called Silicon Icarus. That's a compilation of a lot of writings. And I think it is like Icarus, this idea that they have these aspirations, the Silicon Valley, that they are going to surge, you know, the, the sun and the things that the, it's going to melt, you know, that wax is going to melt off, but we have to have the fortitude to get to that point. Um, but there's sort of this mystical experience, and you know, Philadelphia has this interesting history of both, like, Freemasonry and power and all sorts of things. And in the 1690s, these monks came from the old world, from Germany and Silesia. Um, it was Jakob Zimmermann and uh, Johannes Kelpius. And they were, they, were, they were a millenarian cult. They thought it was the end of the world, and they said that they were supposed to go to Pennsylvania and wait for the woman in the wilderness. And so they brought 40 men, monks, and they built a 40, like, uh, a school and an observatory, and they were astronomers and astrologers and mystics and alchemists, and, um, you know, they had their faith, they had the, one of the first hymnals in the new world they developed, and so again, vibration, vibrational things, and it didn't, it didn't happen, but there's a, um, a space, it's probably really just a spring house, but they call it the Kelpius Cave in the park in, in the city, and the Rosicrucians have a monument to him outside of it. And they're like, he's the first Rosicrucian of North America, right? And so this monument on the side of it, it just has, you know, it was put up in the 60s, I think. It's, you know, it's maybe 10 inches wide there. It says Nephili on the side in Greek. Now, I would not know Greek. Like, my husband with me goes, oh, that's Greek. Let's, that says Nephili. I'm like, who came out and wrote that on that marker out there? Who did that, right? And so, so Nephili was the cloud nymph in the Greek mythology. So Ixion, I think, was like the first murderer in, like, the mythology was lusting after Zeus's wife Hera, so he recreated Nephili, who was a cloud nymph, to, uh, as a twin of her, and then she was raped, and then from that came the centaurs. And now they're saying we don't call them cyborgs. Cyborgs isn't such a good word. We should call them centaurs, right? And then later, like there was some other like remarriage and other children after a famine, um, like the the ram that became the golden fleece like saved them. But there was a, a crop famine too. So these there are these elements of like clouds and violence and twinning and the centaur piece. Like there are these things. And so who who you know? And I, at first I thought, is it chalk? Because it's very carefully done, but hand done, and it's paint. I've gone back again. It's still there, but. The NIH has started an initiative to study the microbiome, and they specifically say they're, they're, they're calling it Nephili. Now, Penn is a center, and actually, 
You should look up Roz Ben's work. It's really interesting. He's a geomancy guy in Philadelphia, R-A-S-B space B-E-N. And he does a lot of historical research, sort of esoteric knowledge on Philadelphia. And like it's his premise like that is told through the public art of Philadelphia that Ben Franklin and Prometheus opened the gates of hell in Philadelphia. <laughs> and, and, you know, Penn is Ben Franklin's university. So I'm like, I don't know. Penn started impact investing. Penn is doing this biotech CRISPR research. Penn is doing a lot. ENIAC, the first computer, like big mainframe. Like there's a lot going on at Penn. Like, let me tell you. So anyway, so I just sort of want to draw that connection. And I think that's sort of the, the last bit. The next, tomorrow when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the game. And you know what? Let's close with Michael Crow. Let's run this last one. And then, um, and then that, that'll be. We have 150 partnerships. We've built a learning platform that's unparalleled. We launched a program in August just to offer a few courses to some folks. On a global basis, we had 192 countries respond. Over 120,000 learners for the first couple courses that we put out. We had 12-year-olds in Peru complete college astronomy courses for credit. I don't know what that means. It means something. We got about. I had a meeting yesterday with uh, Bill Gates in, in San Diego as a part of the ASU GSV uh, Innovation Conference on Educational Technology that we had 3,600 people attend uh, yesterday. And, and I was walking through uh, with uh, Mr. Gates the uh, fourth realm that we're presently operating in, which is education through exploration through game-based learning. Or just imagine this at the end of the game, and we, we're building this game, at the end of the game, you don't take a single test. You don't take a single course. You don't have a single lecturer. And at the end of the game that you play, you'll be able to pass any college entrance exam, or what we call Cambridge A-level exams. Anyone that completes the game, boy, girl, doesn't make any difference, any A-level exam in math, chemistry, physics, or biology, period. What does that mean for learning? So yeah, so I'll just close there. Oh, oh, so, um, so just in closing, I, I don't have all of the economic answers. I, I do want to say I have grave concerns about blockchain as liberation. And last summer I had the gift of spending some time on, a, on Lakota land in South Dakota. And I actually, I, I saw for myself the gift economy, like people who on, on the books probably economically are the most disenfranchised of, of anyone and the generosity that was was given to me, and um, including some fabric with ast astronomy because they're the star people. And it was quite amazing. And so um, I want to just advance the gift economy a tiny bit today. So I have, it's like a gifted gift. A friend, I this my whole dandelion project, I wanted to create something that were like conversation starters that were outside of COVID because I feel like right now we have to get out of their game and they want us to keep talking about that. It's about all bigger things. And so we, we I had these slogans that would say, um, like, dandelion manifest, like manifesting, don't geofence me in, nature not nano, and the revolution will not be tokenized, meaning blockchain tokens. And so um, a, a lovely woman who lives on Lake Onondaga, and I'm going to go up and actually speak with, um, do a presentation with Andrew Kaufman and Tom Cowan um, in July, um, and so I'm staying with her, and she's an artist, so she made this artwork and designed this for me, and I put it on fabric. And so I'm just going to circulate. I, like, ultimately, I wanted to sew in public and turn these into buttons. Like, I didn't just want to buy buttons. It didn't feel right. Like, it was actually. And so I, like, I can't give you anything more than the patch. But even if you just put it on a safety pin, like, it's a conversation starter. And I think the energetic point of this is that it's coming from a place that is, um, 
has light, has love and light. And I'm not saying that, in a, but I think really energetically, um, Michael Bloomberg, he built his European headquarters. He's going to run the global prison planet for Bill Gates, by the way, like on the Mithric the temple, the Rowan ruins of this Mithric temple. That didn't happen by, so we've, we've got to do like the dandelion power. So thank you for your attention today. I look forward to continuing tomorrow.